millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.15, Helena and Louise, The Other Daughters. When I started this series, I was clear that I wasn't going to be covering every daughter and granddaughter of Queen Victoria. It would get repetitive and would mean that this series would go on forever. This is why I selected only three of Victoria's daughters to cover, Vicky, Alice and Beatrice. This is because I found them the most interesting, but also because it is their daughters that we will be covering in the subsequent episodes. However... I have been getting some emails from people asking about Victoria's other two daughters, Helena and Louise. Surely they didn't leave completely anonymous and boring lives? Surely there's enough there to merit at least an episode each? Well, yes. Yes, there is. More than just an episode each, in fact. But still, there is Father Time's ticking clock hanging over all of our heads. So, I've decided to split the difference and do a quick episode here to give you a brief summary of their lives. Well, I say quick, but I imagine you've seen the episode length, so you'll know that's a bit of a fib. If life was fair and we had unlimited time, things would be different. But it isn't, so we don't. So I'm afraid I'm going to rather shortchange you. Anyway, before we get going with this, I would just like to thank all of my Patreon supporters that keep this show going. If you'd like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast and throw me a quid or two. It's all much appreciated. Okay, to all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. We've been with the children of Queen Victoria for some time now, so I reckon you've probably got their names and the order they came in pretty much down. Vicky came first, Alice was third, Beatrice was last. There were four sons in there too, all jumbled in. Helena and Louise, the subjects of this episode, came in fifth and sixth, in between Alfred and Arthur. Helena was born in 1846, Louise in 1848. Now, as we all know, The great dividing line in the lives of Victoria's children was the year 1861, the ultimate annus horribilis where both Victoria's mother and husband died. Those like Vicky and Alice, who had all or most of their childhoods before that year, had a pretty idyllic time of it. Those like Beatrice, who had most of it after that date, found it pretty dreary and dour. Helena and Louise were somewhat in the middle both being in their mid-teens in 1861, 
mean they got a bit of both. Now, if we are to reduce all of Victoria's daughters that we've covered to their most notable characteristic, Vicky was the clever one, Alice was the caring one, and Beatrice was the loyal one. Well, by that method, Helena was the tomboy one, and Louise, much like Harriet and Love actually, was the sexy one. Helena, while far from a dunderhead, could not match the intellectual achievements of her two elder sisters. She was decent at quote-unquote womanly pursuits, like drawing, dancing and music playing, but where she really excelled was in outdoor pursuits. She loved riding, walking and swimming. She was a fast runner, and complained that it was no fun competing against other girls because they were too slow. If her brothers teased her, she wouldn't argue with them, she'd smack them one. She was fascinated with machinery and the way things worked. Indeed, when they went out on yachts at Osborne, she would be down below decks, getting her hands dirty with the crew. No wonder that Victoria, who was obsessed by beauty, complained that she was her plainest daughter and cared too little about her appearance. She was, therefore, a marked contrast with Louise, who was apparently by far the prettiest of Victoria's daughters. Her mother doted on her, loving to dress her up like something of a human doll. But she quickly began to find Louise to be her most difficult child, prone to moodiness. She was intelligent, but again not as clever as her older sisters, and so suffered by comparison. Where she outshone them all, though, was in artistic talent. Both her parents loved art, and were accomplished painters, and it seems that Louise had been infused with all of that skill. Okay, let's skip forward to the events after Albert's death. As we all know by now, Alice took on the burden of taking care of Victoria in the greatest throes of her grief. Part of her duties was to be Victoria's secretary, and she required an assistant. Now, you might have expected that Helena, as the next eldest daughter, would have taken that on, but actually, no. Helena really struggled to control her emotions in the months after Albert's death, frequently bursting into floods of tears at the drop of a hat. In a decision of astounding hypocrisy, Victoria decreed that Helena was therefore too unstable to support Alice in her duties, and so the 13-year-old Louise got the gig. This lasted until Alice's marriage and departure to Hesse, whereupon Helena, apparently now more emotionally stable, took on her role as secretary, with Louise remaining as an assistant. We're probably quite familiar with what being Victoria's secretary involved, as we've been there before in previous episodes, but it seems that Helena had it at least as bad as Alice had. One member of the household wrote, quote, I am much distressed about poor Princess Helena, who is cruelly overworked, the Queen having no notion about how her mind and body are strained, and, indeed, no one to take her place. It was gruelling work, and for a very unpredictable taskmaster. Louise wasn't really much help. Indeed, she was something of a loose cannon. In a letter to Vicky, her mother wrote, quote, she is very odd, dreadfully contradictory, very indiscreet, and, from that, making mischief very frequently. On one famous occasion, Louise remarked, quote, Mama was not too unwell to open Parliament, only unwilling. Victoria certainly had the right daughter by her side, but that wouldn't be for long, as the matter of Helena's marriage was becoming pressing. Now, we've touched on the matter of Helena's wedding quite a few times in this series. It was, if you remember, to Christian of Schleswig-Holstein, a penniless, balding, rather plain man, quite a bit older than she, with a bad cigar habit and no real prospects to speak of. His brother, remember, had lost his title of Duke of Schleswig-Holstein after the Prusso-Danish War. But he had two principal advantages. One... He was a nice, easygoing man, which suited the down-to-earth Helena perfectly. And two, all those disadvantages meant that he was willing to live in the UK and allow Helena to stay close to her mother. And that was the be-all and end-all for the Queen. Indeed, Victoria was rather surprised that she had managed to find anyone to marry her daughter. 
In her standard blunt language, she described Helena as being, quote, Though most useful and active and clever and amiable, she does not improve in looks and has great difficulties with her figure and her want of calm, quiet and dignified manners. Something of a theme with Victoria's children is that they so often suffered in comparison with each other, and this was definitely the case here, as Louise seemed to be the very opposite of Helena, for both good and bad. The matter of Helena's marriage split the family down the middle, with Helena and Victoria having Vicky on their side, with the opposing faction being led by Bertie and Alice, who saw the marriage as an insult to Alex of Denmark, the Princess of Wales, and feared that Helena's prospects were being sacrificed on the altar of Victoria's happiness. Though she didn't have much in the way of a say in this whole controversy, Louise felt very protective of her elder sister, especially when the marriage was being slammed in the Prussian press. When Vicky asked her what she thought Helena might like as a wedding present, Louise coldly replied, quote, Bismarck's head on a charger. This wedding also led Victoria to do something that she had assiduously avoided to do for half a decade. It was feared that Parliament, in protest of Victoria's failure to turn up to any of its state openings, was going to vote against Helena's annuity. Therefore, she was forced, with great reluctance, to show up in all her finery and do her duty. Thanks to that, the thing was all voted through, and on the 5th of July, 1866, Helena and Christian were married at Windsor Castle. They were to make their home first at Frogmore, and then at Cumberland House, both also at Windsor. As I said, Victoria meant to keep her close. But while she would never be totally free of her mother's clutches, she did manage to find freedom and happiness with her husband. Quote, These last six months have brought me such real happiness, she wrote to a friend. I do indeed look forward to a very bright, happy future with my Christian. Though this was a moment of great excitement and joy for Helena, for Louise, it was quite the opposite. She was delighted for her sister, but devastated for what it meant for her. She wrote to a friend that she was, quote, low and sad, and spent much of the day in her room crying. She was outgoing and vivacious, yet while all her elder siblings were out in the world, she was left at home, and now she had to experience the drudgery and the stress of working for her mother. She yearned to escape, and she found release in a rather unusual and scandalous source. Captain Walter Sterling was appointed as tutor to Prince Leopold in 1866, and quickly ingratiated himself with the royal family. Leopold thrived under his tutelage, and Sterling became a fixture at family gatherings and parties. But then, very soon after, he simply vanishes. The reason why is not entirely known, but there is a rumour that he and Louise not only had an affair, but there was also a child. Shock! Gasp! In her biography of Louise, Lucinda Hawksley relates the long road to trying to find an answer to this mystery, from sections cut from Victoria's journals by Beatrice to meddling modern archivists. The surviving material that has been released seems suspiciously curated, and what is left throws up more questions than answers. Louise was seen in public a lot during this time, except towards the end of 1866, which, if one does the maths, is around the time that she would have given birth. And then, after a discreet interval, she returns again. She's also reported in this period to have dressed herself without the aid of servants, highly unusual, especially given how complex Victorian fashion could be, but would make sense if she was trying to hide a suspicious baby bump. Unless something new emerges, these will only be rumours, and we won't know if Princess Louise had a child out of wedlock and was forced to give it up, but it's too juicy not to include in this episode. As Louise entered her 20s, she began to push further against Victoria's boundaries. She was her secretary and companion, but Louise wanted more for herself than just that. 
She had ambitions of her own, and despite being more able than Helena, she managed to fob off her duties on her married elder sister while she pursued her own passion, that of art. She had become close with Mary Thornycraft, one of the Queen's favourite artists, and the two began a campaign to persuade Victoria to let Louise go to art school. They eventually achieved this in 1868, and Louise was permitted to enter the National Art Training School, now known as the Royal College of Art, which had been originally founded by Prince Albert. Now, of course, she had to keep up with her royal duties, meaning that she had to hold down a full-time job alongside her studies. This meant that she was worked off her feet, with classmates expressing astonishment that a royal would be worked so hard. Louise wasn't an especially radical artist, favouring the pre-Raphaelites over the more radical Impressionists, but she seems to have had some skill. She produced many busts of various members of her family, one of which was exhibited by the Royal Academy. She was particularly taken with the sculptor Joseph Bowen, receiving private lessons with him, and once again there are rumours of a scandalous affair. These stories come from a courtesan, whose lovers included Bertie, named Catherine Walters, also known as Skittles. She related that Louise and Bowen became lovers, and that their affair was discovered by John Brown, leading to a massive row. Again, whether these stories are true or not is an open question, but there is more evidence for this than there had been with Walter Sterling. This all brought into sharp focus the matter of Louise's marriage. It was likely that these scandals would keep on cropping up until the princess got hitched. Now that there were a lot more important women in the family, there was quite the tug of war over who this person might be. Alexandra, the Princess of Wales, wanted her to marry her older brother Frederick, the future King of Denmark. Vicky, in a shock turn of events, wanted her to marry a Prussian, while her mother wanted her to follow in Helena's footsteps and marry a German who was willing to live in the UK. One might expect a free spirit such as Louise to want to get out of the UK and away from her mother's clutches. But no. She wanted to stay in her home country and not be forced away by some dude. Truth be told, she wasn't really keen on the notion of marriage at all, but she couldn't escape that aspect of her duty. Her brother Bertie had quite the sexual appetite and wandering eye, and while marriage had not cured him of that, it was hoped that the same would not be the case for Louise. This insistence on marrying British endeared her to a public that was falling completely in love with this proto-people's princess. She became involved in the campaign for women's emancipation, entering into correspondence with women's rights campaigner Josephine Butler. She was determined to join the fight against the horribly misogynistic laws of the time, but was prevented from doing so actively by the Queen, who insisted that the royal family be above politics. She did, however, stay in contact behind Victoria's back and continued to promote the cause of female empowerment. This rebelliousness only sped up the marriage plans, and eventually a man was found. He was John Campbell, the Marquis of Lorne and heir to the Duchy of Argyll. He met all of her requirements. He was British, outdoorsy, fond of the arts, and fairly free-thinking for his day. Marriage to him would allow Louise to become what she had always really wanted, a provincial aristocrat of leisure, able to pursue her causes and passions without the restraints of title. Well, other than being Victoria's daughter, but there was no getting away from that. The marriage was not without controversy. As a non-royal, he was the first commoner to marry into the royal family since Mary Tudor married the Duke of Suffolk in 1515. Indeed, I remember saying the same stat in reverse back in my Queens of England days. Funny how these things come full circle. For the most part, the news was met with jubilation in the UK, but fury in Germany, as they were outraged that a Prussian hadn't been chosen. Helena, too, was not in favour of the match. She feared that once they were married, Louise would move with him up to Scotland, leaving her and her little sister Beatrice to have to hold the fort with her mother. 
But these objections were waved aside, and the couple were married on the 21st of March 1871 at St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle, with Louise designing not only her own wedding dress, but the bridesmaids as well. Now that the two sisters were married, attention passed to children. Now these kids are not all that important in the scheme of things in this episode, so I'll do this quickly. Helena had six kids, though tragically one died after eight days and the final one was still born. Of the four surviving children, there were two sons, Christian and Albert, named of course for her husband and father, and Helena and Marie Louise. As for Princess Louise, she never had any children. There is speculation that maybe the birth of her alleged illegitimate child may have rendered her infertile, but it's perhaps more likely that the problem lay either with herself or with her husband. Either way, this childlessness would be yet another way in which Louise would stand out from the rest of the crowd, alone without children in a family absolutely swimming in them. So far, we've seen that the two sisters didn't have all that much in common, but they did share a common worldview. Like their elder sisters, Vicky and Alice, they had become very interested in nursing and education. During the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71, Helena led the Ladies' Committee of what would later become the British Red Cross. They led a drive for medical equipment and supplies to be sent to the war zone, and Helena made sure the royal family did their part. The Queen sent bandages and linen, and Louise sent clothing. As a mark of her efforts, the French Red Cross awarded Helena the Bronze Cross as a token of thanks. For Louise, her main focus in the early years after her marriage was in educational reform. We've already talked about her interest in women's rights, and this extended to young girls as well. At the time, it was quite common for girls to leave education with only the most rudimentary skills, and she was determined to change that. One of her major projects was the Girls' Public Day School Company, a charity dedicated to ensuring that girls got a proper education. Helena, too, was a pioneer in education, but in a different way. She and Christian were the first royal parents to send their schools to a local school rather than being educated at home, both being sent to boarding school. They were keen that their children receive no special treatment, that they be exposed to all the same experiences that any of the other pupils would have. I mean, these were still rich boy experiences, but it was a start. On the other end of the scale, Helena also became patron of what later became known as the Princess Helena College for Young Ladies, dedicated to educating the daughters of fallen soldiers and deceased clergy. While Louise was more interested in political reform when it came to women's rights, tackling the symptoms, if you will, Helena was involved in tackling poverty on the streets. She ran food drives, charity concerts and lectures, all with the aim of making life better for the British poor. For Helena, her charity work, the raising of her children and helping business with her secretarial duties were her main concern. But Louise, of course, had her side hustle her passion for art, and now that she was a married woman, she was free to pursue that with greater abandon. She built her first proper studio at Kensington Palace, and commissioned fashionable artists and designers to help her decorate her apartments. She also became friendly with a fashionable artistic elite, and frequented all the right parties and knew all the trendiest people, being particular friends with the scandalous James Whistler and Dante Gabrielle Rossetti. She was also a fan of the avant-garde Grosvenor Gallery, widely considered to be the most fashionable place in London in the late 1870s. She wasn't just an enthusiastic frequenter of the gallery, though. She also exhibited there, including a sculpture called Garant and Enid, as well as paintings such as a portrait of Colonel Charles Lindsay. But her life in London society would be cut short, as a fancy new job for her husband would take her far away across the seas. So, 
So far in this episode, we've examined the two sisters side by side. But now we're going to separate them for a while, as Louise's life is about to take a rather transatlantic turn. The nature of this episode has meant that I haven't had time to talk much about Louise's husband, the Marquis of Lorne, which is a shame because he's a very interesting figure. He'd spent his youth travelling around North America, writing travel books and poetry, and was an MP in the House of Lords, representing Argyleshire for William Gladstone's Liberals, though rather ineffectively. Perhaps due to his knowledge and enthusiasm for all things North American, in 1878 he was offered the position of Governor-General of Canada, the Queen's representative in the Dominion. Perhaps it was thought that giving the Queen's son-in-law such a position would sprinkle a little royal stardust into Canada. Or maybe they were trying to get rid of him. Who knows? You may have expected Louise to have been delighted by this news. Finally, she could place some space between her mother and herself. A whole ocean, in fact. But actually, she wasn't all that keen on the idea. She was a society girl, fond of high culture and the company of her fashionable friends. And now she was being forced to swap all of this for a life in the colonies, a place she didn't know. And it didn't help that relations with her husband were breaking down. Despite having many shared interests, they spent most of their time apart and didn't really get on anymore. Louise was intensely busy balancing her artistic passions and her duties with her mother, and there are rumours that their eyes were for others rather than each other. Louise, of course, had her relationship with Joseph Bowen, And Lorne, well, there was quite a bit of whispering about his consorted with known and suspected gay men. But go she did, and after a ten-day voyage, the couple arrived in Halifax on the 25th of November, where Lorne was officially inaugurated. From there, they travelled to the capital city of Ottawa, where they took up residence at the Governor-General's residence. There were fears that the people of Canada would not take to Louise that she would be condescending and be all high and mighty. But not at all. They loved her. She'd always been popular in London, thanks to her looks and concern for the lives of ordinary people, and that was no different in Canada. Indeed, those around her were astonished by how down-to-earth she was. Guests at her table were surprised when they found out that some of the courses they were eating had been cooked by their hostess, And when an outbreak of scarlet fever hit her household, and some of her servants refused to treat the victims, Louise nursed them back to health herself. As for Louise's views, well, she had nothing against Canadians, but she did like the sun, and the Canadian winter isn't known for its sunshine. And it didn't help that, just a few weeks into her time in the country, her sister Alice died, along with her daughter, making her intensely homesick and sad that she couldn't be there for her family. But that said, she was determined to make the most of the opportunities that came with the move. As the wife of the Governor-General, she was, in effect, the Queen in Canada, if not the Queen of Canada, and so had a public profile and dominion that far exceeded the one she had at home. She also got to continue her proclivity for social change, For example, she was known for treating native Canadians with the same warmth and respect that she would have treated her fellow white settlers, very unusual at a time when they were generally treated as second-class citizens at best. Far from being too snobby for Canada, she brought an informality to the court. She most certainly had the common touch, and while this occasionally scandalised the conservative upper crust, it massively endeared her to the general population. In an attempt to kindle the kind of culture she loved in London, she founded the Royal Canadian Academy of the Arts and encouraged the formation of the Canadian Royal Society and the founding collection of the National Gallery of Canada. She and her husband were keen not just to sit in Ottawa, they wanted to see the whole of Canada, and that they did, travelling the length and breadth of the land. But... Their relationship was only further souring. One of the reasons Lorne loved his new role so much was that it offered a complete role reversal from home. There, he was the commoner married to the Queen's daughter. 
He wasn't even allowed to sit at the same table as her at official state functions. Here, he was the Queen's representative, the King, effectively, which meant that he could lord it over his wife. And she didn't much like that. Whatever time they could spend away from each other, they used. She took up all manner of pursuits, from throwing herself further into her art to fishing and riding. Rumours of mutual affairs sprang up quickly, Louise with half the men of Ottawa, and Lorne with the other half. She could keep this up for a little while, but when her second winter in Canada approached, she decided that she needed a break, and boarded a ship back to the UK. The official line was that she wasn't well, and that she needed to winter somewhere a little warmer than Canada. And while this had an element of truth, I think it more likely that she missed her old life back in London and needed to recharge her batteries. She returned to Canada four months later, but this time to a rather different welcome. No longer was she the glamorous yet down-to-earth royal who had chosen to come to this young country. To some, she had shown her true colours as a pampered, spoiled brat who fled at the first sight of cold. When added to the persistent rumours of her sleeping with nigh on every important man in the land, including the Canadian Prime Minister, it became quickly apparent that her reputation had been trashed. Luckily for her, she managed to turn this around quite quickly. Unluckily for her, she nearly died in the process. On Valentine's Day 1880, she and her husband were in a horse-drawn sleigh when one of their steeds took fright. The sleigh crashed, flipped, and was dragged along the road for several hundred metres. Lorne was thrown into Louise and suffered only minor injuries. But Louise suffered the full impact, not only of the crash, but of her husband banging into her as well. She was knocked unconscious, suffered severe muscular injuries, and part of her ear was torn off. She was very lucky to be alive, but she would suffer from headaches and hearing problems for the rest of her life. Once they heard of the princess's injury, the Canadian public's sympathy overcame their feelings of betrayal. After a prolonged period of recovery, she went on a little tour of North America with her brother Leopold, before returning to the UK again. The news of her leaving once more wasn't taken well, but her husband defended her, saying, perhaps a touch melodramatically, that she had been injured in the service of Canada, and thus they should treat her as they would an injured soldier. This trip home lasted 18 months, and saw Louise fall back into the life that she so loved leading before she left for Canada, visiting hospitals, frequenting artistic hotspots, and courting controversy with handsome men, Joseph Bowen in particular. When she did finally return to Canada, she didn't spend much time there before going on another long foreign trip, this time with her husband, that took her eventually to Bermuda for the winter. She really was loath to spend any time in Ottawa, but even in this she was a trendsetter, as she helped popularise Bermuda as a fashionable winter retreat for North America's rich and famous. She also gave her name to a great many places and landmarks, including, most notably, the province of Alberta. They wanted to call it Louise, but she said no, saying that Alberta, one of her middle names, sounded better and had the added benefit of honouring her late father. She did, though, give the name Louise to a lake in the province, a rather stunning-looking spot if Wikipedia photos are to be believed. By the time their time in Canada had come to an end, Louise was actually rather enjoying the place. Perhaps she had finally managed to create a cultured society that more reflected her interests. But Lorne's time was up, and so, in 1883, they set sail for home for good this time. Okay, while Louise is on a ship back to England, let's catch up with Helena. Well, this period was when she was busy in the business of raising those children that had lived and grieving for those that had not. She suffered from severe bouts of depression, but did not feel that she could confide this to her mother. Luckily, she had her supportive husband and her elder sister Vicky, who, if you remember, had also lost her son, Valdemar, when he was very young. This shared loss brought the two sisters very close together, and they were a great comfort to each other. 
she also threw herself further into public service. I mentioned earlier her interest in nursing and education. Well, in the 1870s and 1880s, she worked hard at her various charities in those areas, keeping a firm hand on the tiller. She ran them in a rather dictatorial, no-nonsense manner. Once she had made a decision, that was it. It didn't matter if everyone wasn't in agreement. In this sense, she was very much her mother's daughter, and it seems that no one dared contradict her. Nothing was too big or too small a cause. She raised money for caring for soldiers in their communities through charity concerts and organised food drives for the needy, offering free dinners during the winter at Guild Hall in Windsor. She was also the founding president of the British Nurses Association and established the notion that all nurses should be fully trained in the practice. Not doing anything by halves, she also designed its badge and gave it a motto, steadfast and true, a phrase strongly associated with her late father. She was also involved closely in the work of the Order of St John of Jerusalem, now better known through the work of St John Ambulance First Aid Charity. Helena was highly involved in the Order's activities, including attending lectures on first aid, presenting awards, and even taking courses herself. In 1882, she translated First Aid to the Injured into English, one of the founding texts of modern first aid from its original German. She also contributed a preface, in which she confided her own personal view and reasoning for her interest in first aid. She wrote, quote, The satisfaction of being able to tender the needed aid to those in pain, and of possibly being the means of saving a valued life, should more than counterbalance the scruples that some might feel on entering such a study. This wasn't her first act of translation. Indeed, she'd been at it since she was a girl. As a teenager, she had translated her father's letters from German into English for his official biographer, and had done so with, quote, surprising fidelity. She also translated letters between Victoria and Alice for publication, a work that Victoria herself commented she had done with, quote, great refinement and feeling. Away from German, she also translated the memoirs of a sister of Frederick the Great from French, as well as her correspondence with Voltaire. She was also a very curious reader, unafraid to look at books of a controversial or even revolutionary nature. For example, not only did she read Das Kapital, but had one of her friends visit Karl Marx himself and write up a report for her about the man. Alright, I think that pretty much catches us up. So now we're in the mid-1880s, and the two sisters are both back in the country. While Helena's marriage to Christian had only strengthened, and her love for him only deepened over the years, Louise's to Lorne was even more strained, especially now they were back in the UK. In Canada, they had gotten away with being apart most of the time, but now the press attention and interest was so much greater, it was much harder to get away with it only putting even more strain on relations between husband and wife. The difference in the state of their respective marriages is best expressed by the aftermath of the death of their brother Leopold in 1884. While Helena had the support of Christian to help her through the tragedy, Louise, who was closer to her brother than her sister had been, found herself almost entirely on her own. Worse than that, she had now lost her one true confidant in the family, the man that had taken on the role one might have expected her husband to have done. There is this famous story, possibly apocryphal, that Louise got so fed up with Lorne for sneaking off at night to sleep with the palace soldiers that she had her windows bricked up, either to stop him from admiring men from the window or to prevent him from escaping. Things got so bad indeed that Louise went to her mother and demanded a separation, but Victoria refused. The Queen wrote in a letter to Vicky that Louise was, quote, bent on separating from him. This dare not be, for we cannot have scandal in the family. Louise was furious with her mother, blaming her for making her marry Lorne in the first place. Louise spent much of the next few years travelling around southern Europe, sometimes with her husband to keep up appearances, but mostly with Nod. The usual excuse was that this was for her health, 
And while this was undoubtedly part of it, one suspects that she just wants to be away from him in a way that was less publicly obvious. Meanwhile, Helena was getting involved in some high politics in Germany. You may remember the fateful year of 1888 from the series on Vicky. This was the one where her husband Fritz very briefly became emperor, but then died 99 days later. Helena became involved in defending her sister in public against all the mudslinging that was coming her way, and helped sort Vicky's correspondence. If you remember, Vicky had gotten it all out of Germany before her husband died, so she could keep it out of Wilhelm's hands. The two of them spent months going through it all, returning some to the original senders and burning the rest. She had better relations with Wilhelm than most of the family, and tried hard to repair relations between mother and son. But she quickly found herself in the middle of the most messy and vicious family drama that one could imagine. The only really lasting impact of her well-meaning attempt to help was on Helena's health, which suffered greatly under the strain. Louise, meanwhile, was going through trials of her own. In 1890, her tutor-come possible-slash-probable lover, Joseph Bohem, died in his studio at the age of 56. This immediately got tongues wagging, as it was suspected that Louise had been the one who found the body, and was perhaps even present when he died. The official version of events omits Louise's presence entirely, stating that it was Bohem's neighbour that discovered the body. But rumours swirled that not only was it Louise that discovered him, but they were in the middle of a particularly passionate bout of adultery when he had his heart attack. However it happened, the death of Bohem had again a very profound effect on Louise, as, yet again, she had lost a close friend and confidant. She dealt with loss in the way that so many of her family did, by blaming her relatives and then throwing herself into public duty. She travelled the country, opening feints, launching ships, pretty much anything in order to keep her mind off both her loss and the state of her life. She also spent more time than ever before on her art, finding peace in the hours at work in a studio. Now, you may have noticed that I haven't actually talked all that much about the relationship between Louise and Helena recently. This is largely because it isn't all that interesting. They seem to have gotten on okay, but they weren't the closest of sisters. But relations between the two were about to take a bit of a hit, and surprise, surprise, it was because of a scandal involving Louise. Arthur Big was a former army officer that had just been appointed as the Queen's private secretary. Victoria by now was half-blind, and Beatrice was taking more and more responsibility away from her. Big and Louise were very close, and Beatrice and Helena suspected that they were having an affair, and ensured that the Queen was informed. Louise was deeply hurt. Not only had her sisters embarrassed her in public, but they hadn't even talked to her about it first. they just exposed her without so much as a warning. That isn't cool. She saw them as jealous, jealous of her easy charm and beauty. And while this is a little unfair, it does seem rather vindictive of Beatrice and Helena to throw Louise under the bus in the way that they did. This is apparently because Beatrice suspected Louise of trying to seduce her husband Lico, and Helena may have been of the same view. Quite frankly, though, Helena had more important things to worry about. Her husband had just lost his eye in a rather unfortunate accident while out shooting, her youngest daughter's marriage collapsed, and her son tragically died of illness while on campaign in South Africa. And on top of all of that, she was having to take more and more responsibility for her mother, as Beatrice needed the help. This only exacerbated her latent depression, which in turn was only made worse by the opiate that she was prescribed to help. It was a vicious cycle. Okay, as we enter the 20th century, a number of deaths had a great effect on the sisters. The first was the death of Lorne's father in April 1900. On one hand, that meant a boost in title for Louise, as her husband became the new Duke of Argyll. On the other, the Argyll was in considerable financial difficulty, which was far from ideal. Then, of course, came the death of their brother Alfred, their mother Victoria, and then sister Vicky in July 1901. 
Helena and Louise react to the aftermath of their mother's death in different ways. For Helena, this was a very difficult time. She worked hard with Beatrice to sort Victoria's effects and to decorate her new home on Pall Mall that had been left for her in the will. But she struggled to assimilate the new regime. She and Christian had never been that close to Bertie and Alexandra, the new king and queen, largely thanks to the ill will that Alexandra held against Christian that dated all the way back to the Schleswig-Holstein War. Louise, on the other hand, was far closer to Bertie. This is hardly surprising. They were both larger-than-life characters with a penchant for scandal, and they made for a popular pair. Louise even stood in for Alexandra at times, as the Queen wasn't in tremendous health. Louise delighted in the new, fun-loving, raucous court that Bertie had brought in. So while Helena distracted herself with her charities and causes, Louise was having a jolly old time at parties and decorating her new home on the Isle of Wight. She also got to demonstrate her artistic flair by designing Alexandra's coronation robes. That is not to say that she wasn't also getting involved in her own causes, and one can definitely argue that they, along with Beatrice, essentially invented the role of being a full-time working royal at this time. They represented their brother at civic events and functions, and promoted worthy causes, in the same way that we expect modern royals to. Neither of them showed any sign of slowing down, even as those close to them began to fall ill and die. Bertie's reign as king was short, with him dying in 1910 and being succeeded by his son, George V. In 1914, two months before war broke out in Europe, Louise's husband, the Duke of Argyll, died at the age of 68. Widowhood struck Louise very hard. As we've seen, she hardly had a great relationship with her husband, but following his death, she had a nervous breakdown. She wrote to a friend, quote, I cannot get over my loss at all. I am, apart from the sorrow, utterly lost, and desolation is all around me. Just three years later, Helena endured similar heartbreak. In October 1917, the day after the anniversary of his son's death, Christian died at home at the age of 87 after an attack of bronchitis. Loss brought the sisters closer together. While at first Louise refused to invite Helena to comfort her in her grief, which she found very hurtful and others thought rather undignified, things did eventually smooth over. Perhaps a contributing factor to things was the wartime spirit that engulfed the country following the outbreak of the First World War. This was a difficult time for the whole royal family, as they all had friends and family on the other side of the conflict, but it hit Helena particularly hard for two reasons. The first was that she had always been close to Wilhelm, as I've said before, than her other sisters, and found it hard that her country was now at war against his. But what made it worse was that her only surviving son, Albert, who had succeeded to the Duchy of Schleswig-Holstein, was on the other side of the war as well. Fortunately, his request to be excused from taking up arms against his former country was respected, and he was placed in charge of the prisoner of war camp for British soldiers. As you might expect, Helena and Louise spent the war working to support their various charities and good causes. Helena, for example, spent hours in hospital meetings and in fundraising for new hospitals, while Louise toured the country, raising money for charities for the wounded and on education programmes on things like hygiene and domestic economy. After the war, Helena, realising that her health was waning, passed on control of her various concerns to others and went into semi-retirement, though she was loath to give up her favourites. She was never going to be someone who retired easily, and was working hard at them right up to her dying day. A month after attending the wedding of her great-nephew, Albert Duke of York, to Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, the future parents of her current queen, Elizabeth II, Helena contracted a head cold, which turned into influenza. She did her best to work through the pain and fatigue, even continuing to attend charity meetings, but it was clear the end was nigh. She suffered a heart attack and died on the 8th of June 1923, at the age of 77. In a tribute given to the House of Commons, the Home Secretary said, quote, Few people, perhaps, realise the amount of pioneer work which she did for the cause of nursing. Florence Nightingale planted, 
Princess Christian watered, and God has given an increase in a very wonderful way. For I think it is no exaggeration to say that the alleviation of the pain of thousands of suffering in war has been very largely contributed by the pioneer work which Princess Christian did in the quiet time which preceded the war. The opposition spokesman agreed, adding, quote, She was devoted to humanitarian duties, and never wearied in well-doing, and for one so elevated in station and social position, she left a memory of acts of benevolence and kindly social service. Louise hung on for quite a bit longer, spending much of her time at Kensington Palace. In her old age, she reconciled with Princess Beatrice, and the two clung together somewhat, the final bastions of a bygone age. While she didn't travel as much as she once did, you would still find her wintering in the French Riviera, sketching and painting her afternoons away. She also continued in her public duties, and while she had slowed down, she had lost none of her work ethic, nor her passion for helping the needy. As she entered her late 80s and 90s, she had to give much that up, and retreated into her rooms at Kensington Palace, doing little else but paint. She eventually died on the 3rd of December 1939. In death, she made one final rebellious request. She wanted to be cremated rather than buried. This was still something that Christians opposed, and it was deeply divisive, but her wishes were respected. Her ashes were laid to rest in Windsor, along with most of her family. And so that, finally, brings us to the end of the story of Victoria's daughters. Now, it's time to switch gears and move to the next generation. And we'll start next week with Sophia, daughter of Vicky and future queen of the Helens. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.